Welcome to the Soak by Slush podcast, where we discuss foundational lessons for building iconic technology companies with some of the most successful founders, operators, and investors out there. And what an exciting conversation we have in store for today. We're joined by Dina Shakir, partner at Lux Capital, the notoriously frontier tech-focused fund. Dina herself has the most fascinating of backgrounds. She's a first-generation daughter of Iraqi immigrants, and she self-funded her way through Harvard and Georgetown. After kicking off her career in media, she moved to public service, working for Hillary Clinton's office during during the Obama administration, and eventually ended up leading product partnerships at Google before jumping into venture, first at GV and later Lux. At Lux, Dina invests in transformative technologies improving lives and livelihoods, especially in women's health, digital health, and the intersection of those. She has led investments in some exceptional companies from Maven Clinic to Ramp. Let's go to the episode. Upfront, I will confess to being a huge Slux fanboy. I think whenever I feel a lack of enthusiasm about what we're doing in the startup ecosystem, I go and watch your Ode to the Rebels of Invention videos. I'm really, really looking forward to the, the conversation we're going to have today. I'm delighted to be here. You took a fascinating non-linear path into venture. You started off as a journalist, you turned to public service, and eventually you ended up in tech at Google before you joined GV and, and later Lux. So I did want to start off with what did those experiences teach? you to do differently than most VCs? Yeah, I mean, I certainly did not think I was going to be a VC when I grew up, nor did I even think that when I was graduating college or in the first five to seven years of my career. I I made some pretty weird transitions. I studied social studies and Near Eastern languages and civilizations as an undergrad. I thought I was going to be an anthropologist. I went from working in government to having this deep conviction that I needed to work in tech, but not on the edges of tech, in product. And at Google, it was my job to be the first non-technical person to come in whenever an ambitious PM or engineer had a moonshot and to ask those questions and see if this can be a viable business. And frankly, it was being an outsider that gave me the access I had because I had no qualms asking the dumb questions. I had no issues spending my days talking to people smarter than me and learning from them. And so that's really not too dissimilar from what I do every day now. Um, And so for me, I think it helps to appreciate the underdogs, to really have a, a, a true belief in the zigs and the zags of a journey to understand the non-obvious because I am definitely a non-obvious VC to see something that may have worked in one field and apply it to another to understand the limitations in copy pasting a model from one to another and that also has to do with who to ask those questions to and having that in every sense of the word really diverse network. So pattern recognition and and networks. On that point, can you just tell me the first company you invested in at Lux and what that decision-making process was like? It was in a company called Shiru. I'm still on the board of it and I'm absolutely blown away by the progress they've made. It's a company that's applying computational biology and machine learning, essentially using precision fermentation to generate plant-based proteins to replace animal proteins as ingredients. So rather than trying to create the next Impossible Burger or Beyond Meat Burger, Burger, they are enabling major food companies to actually replace egg or replace gelatin or whatever other ingredients that they are currently using animal proteins for. And so this one was was an interesting one for me in a number of ways. Number one, I had been at GV before joining Lux and had the chance to you know get exposed to a lot of those really innovative consumer brands in food tech like Impossible, like Ripple. And I saw how much R&D went into the development of just a single protein, millions and millions of dollars. Similarly, 
literally, I had already spent a little bit of time in healthcare and I had seen this model of developing IP and licensing it. And so this idea of applying that model to the food space to enable actual change at scale, to address climate change one ingredient at a time, that was really compelling to me. So when I met Jasmine early on, I was only a few weeks into my time at Lux. It was just, you know, incredibly exciting for me. And also very proud of the fact that she was eight months pregnant when we invested. You know, I had this thesis just being a mom myself that becoming a mother makes you a, a better professional. And what, why is that? Why does being a mother make you a better professional? Yeah. So a couple of things. First of all, everything becomes a trade-off, right? Every moment you're spending, not with this human being that literally is relying on you for their emotional and physical well-being. So you become ruthless about prioritization. Ain't nobody got time for BS. You just, <laughs> you you get things done. You know, I think there's like a, a saying, like if you need to get something done, give it to a busy mom. So as much as I've worked hard my entire life, as much as I felt like I really valued productivity, I didn't know what those words meant until I became a mom. So you work hard, you work better. You're able to learn skills even as your children evolve. Like there are skills that I learn as I negotiate with my children, as I try to understand what's going on in their worlds that actually help me in the context of, of business. I think it's not a coincidence that some of the best business and negotiation books out there have a chapter on parenting. Uh, I actually wrote an article about this and, and I, I continue to believe it, it's a fact. It truly is an asset. Then let's switch gears and let's talk about generational founders and, and how you spot them early. You know, at Lux, you've written initial checks in companies from first institutional capital, pre-seed seed, all the way to Series D. And I want to know, when you're making an investment decision at each of those ends of the spectrum, what is it that worries you the most? Yeah, you know, it's rare to have a multi-stage fund with the same group of partners who are making those decisions from pre-seed and new co-incubation all the way through pre-IPO. But I would say across the board for me, it is still fundamentally a people business. Yes, you will have far more metrics to look at and numbers to crunch and unit economics to analyze at later stages of growth. But if there's anything I've learned so far, it is that this is about the founder. So in terms of what worries me, it's why would you go down this? path. Starting a business is irrational. It doesn't make sense. It's a crazy thing to do. It's a hard thing to do. What is it about the world or the problem that you're trying to solve or something personal to your situation that is driving you to this irrational behavior? That's something I really need to understand. And if there's not a good answer to that, or if it's sort of a hammer looking for a nail or some ego driven thing, just wanting to be a founder, that to me is not always a good sign. So let's say you've, you were pitched by an early stage business which had an amazing founding team were absolutely convinced that they are capable of building something great. But the specific company that they're pitching to you, you're not so convinced. What would you do in that situation? Yeah, it's a great question. I've been in those situations before. One thing that's really important to get to the heart of in those conversations is how resilient and how coachable is this founder. And it's really a fine balance of the mission-driven, relentless tenacity and the ability to recognize the inevitable failure points and learn from those and iterate. And so when you find that balance, that's really where the magic is. And I have invested in founders who I consider to be blank check entrepreneurs who I know will build something great. Usually it's also in a market that I think can be quite large. But in those really early situations, you have to know that the deck, if you even see one, is going to look nothing like what it will at a B, a C, a D. That's, that's part of the journey. 
Completely agree. And I think more early stage founders should probably realize that whatever specific take on the market they have at the pre-seed stage is quite unlikely to be what the business turns out if it grows into a later growth stage business. Talking about investment decisions, if it is all about people, what are the, say, three most important traits that you're looking for in a founder? Ooh, just three. Let's see. <laughs> I would say number one is grit because we know how difficult this journey is because it is not always going to be, you know, rosy and up and to the right. And that grit can be underpinned by the personal journey. As you know, Josh Wolf loves to say chips <laughs> on shoulders, make chips in pockets. Um, but grit would be the first. The second one would be openness to feedback, coachability. You also have to recognize when there are signs that things need to evolve and change. And so again, it's a hard balance to find between stubbornness, which is tenacity, put another way, and flexibility. But those are two things that I think the right balance of are really important. And then the third one is communications. I think that's a really underrated skill. And you know, we, of course, at Lux invest in deep tech companies, turning sci-fi into fact. But it's really important to us that the leaders of the companies we're investing in can also effectively communicate what they are doing. And this is important not only to reduce future financing risk, but to hire well, to sell to customers, to execute successful partnerships. One of my partners often asks, you know, some of our deeply scientific founders, can you explain what you're working on to my, you know, eight-year-old child? <laughs> um, and I, I actually think that's really critical. All right. With coachability and communication, what are the things that you see founders think is important that actually isn't mm. in the early stages? Yeah. A couple of things. One trend that I've noticed a lot in particular among solo woman founders is feeling like they need to have a founding team already good to go out the door for a first financing. Uh, it reminds me of some of the data we've seen around hiring and how women will apply for jobs that they are perfectly suited for, right? Exactly to a T of what's in the job description, whereas men have no qualms uh, applying for things that they're underqualified for. So that I think translates itself sometimes into fundraising. And we know that in 2021, only 2% of venture dollars went towards all women or only women founded teams. And that number goes up to 15.6% when you take into account male co-founders. So that may be part of the reason why we're seeing that. And something that I really coach a lot of the founders on is to, to feel comfortable putting your idea out there early. I would also say that oftentimes in the earliest days, there is a bit too much focus on the PL unit economics. Like you need to show, of course, that you have line of sight to making money. However, when you don't yet have a business model, it's kind of hard to extrapolate all the details of what that would look like. So to me, that's more of a framework. Um, and I think sometimes can get a little over analyzed early on. You mentioned some of the deeply frustrating data points around diversity or rather the lack of diversity in the ecosystem. And I think we're going to get back to that a little bit later in the schedule. Before that, I'm curious to ask you, caution founders not to think that they need to have too much in place at the early stages. So when some of the really good companies you backed at the pre-seed to seed have come to you, considering that these are frontier tech companies, like what do they look like at that point? Do they have the early inkling of a product or is it literally a big idea and a couple of brilliant people and a, and a plan for how that might turn into a company? It's all of those things. It really depends. Are people or their ideas? Or in some cases where we do incubation, it's a white space we've identified and leaders we've brought to the table. We, we do all of the above and we know that they will evolve and iterate. We know the teams will look different, but we are willing and want to roll up our sleeves and be a part of that journey. 
And you often hear from VCs when they're passing on something that it's just too early. I say that sometimes too. And that doesn't mean it's too early for me. It doesn't mean it's too early for Lux. It means I haven't seen enough to get to conviction yet. Absolutely. And to finish up on this topic, among the founders you've backed and currently work with, what is one sort of individual habit or trait that you wish all founders would adapt? I would say the openness to communicating and really partnering in every sense of the word. I think some people have a relationship with their investors that's really just like reporting, like here's our updates, there you go. That's not how I like to work. Uh, there are some investors who are excellent and have a great track record who do work like that and, and more power to them, but that's not why I do what I do. When I say I commit, I'm talking in many cases, if not most cases, you know, daily interactions, phone calls on the weekend, spending time with their families and my family and making sure that there's enough trust on both sides to have that transparent conversation. And what that means is when there's a person that's not working out on the team, let's talk about it. It shouldn't be a surprise to me when it happens. Let me help with your own mental health and well-being as you're dealing with that, as well as what's best for the company. Those are the, the types of things that from a trait or habit perspective that I think are really important. And you can't just like decide one day to do that. It's something that is practiced and, and, and happens over time. Mm-hmm. If uh, supporting founders is sometimes a VC market getting platitude. That certainly sounds like what the term should actually mean. So that's fantastic. Uh, but then let's switch gears and let's talk about Lux specifically. And I think let's talk about Lux's incredibly inspirational thesis, the technologies and companies you back and how that all relates to human progress. And I want to start with your thesis at Lux is so inspirational, like patient capital into iconoclastic founders that operate at the edges of what is physically possible. So when creating that thesis in, in 2000, what do your founders, Joss, Peter and Robert, realize that others didn't. Yeah, I have so much respect and admiration for what they did in those early days. I mean, it's mind boggling to me that they were in their early 20s, had never you know, worked really in this industry, but they had this conviction, this passion, this relentless drive, this idea that there was an opportunity to invest in the earliest days of company creation in a category that hadn't really clearly been created in venture, right? There wasn't such a clear venture return profile for these types of companies. And, you know, it wasn't up and to the right, right away. Like it, it was, the first fund was $10 million and now we're at 4 billion AUM. So we have come a long way and that is still a big part of our DNA. And as I made the move over to Lux, I was thinking about the few different options that I had. And that was one of the major drivers for me in coming here because there is that humility, that appreciation for the hustle and the drive and a really deep intellectual rigor, which was something I was seeking out. I grew up in a family where I have three brothers and we all were speech and debate champions. And so you can imagine what those dinner conversations were like. Nothing was just said, everything was debated. And I love that, that's that's how I am. And so I love that application to the job where we are learning every day. We poke holes in things. We don't spray and, and, and pray. We really are thoughtful about how we deploy our capital. And that's pretty special in this industry. That's so funny to hear. I also rank as my highest accolade Finnish champion in high school debating. So uh, uh-huh. with you there, with, uh, with, I love with, uh, it. <laughs> But, but I was curious to ask, you know, some, I think most notably probably Founders Fund have made the argument that ever since the dot-com boom, basically ever since 1999, venture capital as an industry turned quite a bit more cynical. If it was once founded to back the creation of semiconductor technologies in the 60s and 70s, like by definition, creating stuff that did not exist. You know, if, if that's what it once was, maybe it's become an industry that uh, rather backs the application of somewhat meaningless technology 
technologies across different industries. So do you agree with that? And and if yes, like what do we need to wind back the clock? You know, I think that characterization might be true for a small sliver of venture capital, but it's certainly not true for the world that I live in. There are still so many industries, sectors, categories that have barely been touched by technology, let alone deep tech. Um, that's certainly the case in almost all of healthcare. I'm still seeing no, you know, notepads and pens in terms of data documentation, microscopes and human eyes in terms of diagnostics. The sheer amount of real estate there is to apply technology to and really transform lives is extraordinary. I mean, we are still just getting started and that's kind of how technology works, right? This sort of idea of exponential innovation. It's not that there's a, you know, a discrete amount of space to which a single tech can be applied. The more advanced NLP gets, the more expansive the applications can get. The better you can get with miniaturization of hard technologies, the, the more you can apply those to everyday life. The same for microfluidics and so on. So there is really, I think, an entire universe still ahead of us. So talking about infrastructural advances that are going to result in kind of exponential possibilities, like we here at Slash, we have this thesis that we're actually living in a pretty special moment of time where just in the past two to three years, there's been so much progress on kind of important scientific infrastructure that lends itself to commercial innovation. Like there's mRNA vaccines. We've uh, arguably reached quantum supremacy. We might be on the cusp of reducing energy costs for the first time since the 1970s because of wind and solar. We've created uh, brain-computer interfaces that give sight to the blind. Like, the list goes on of stuff we've achieved that feels really important in just the past two to three years. So what institutional change do we need to ensure that these aren't just cool technologies in labs, but they are taken to market efficiently through a whole host of scalable companies? I love that question. I think I'll use the, the mRNA vaccine because this is actually an example I often bring up when I talk about technology in the context of human health. And the fact that that vaccine was developed in absolutely record-breaking time that enabled us to hopefully for posterity, but at least for now, reconvene and return to some sense of normalcy. That is incredible. It's an amazing technological achievement, but what did we learn from the development and deployment of those vaccines? We learned that technology itself is not enough. In order to get shots in arms, you needed to meet patients where they are. You needed to truly engender trust. And that can be applied across almost anything that we do here, which is that the technology needs to be incredible, but the deployment and the commercialization needs to be thoughtful and needs to be sophisticated. And, and that's the kind of thing we look for in all of our investments. Yeah, totally with you there on that kind of exceptional pace of approval of mRNA vaccines. I think Patrick Collison, the CEO of Stripe, has this uh, page on his website where he lists human projects that have gone really, really fast. And most of them are like, 100 years old, but I think the latest edition is BioNTech's and Pfizer's vaccine, mm -hmm. which was developed in a, in a couple of days. So I think it's extremely impressive. Uh, but then let's switch gears and let's talk about the last topic on the on the schedule, which is the, the frustrating lack of progress on, on diversity and inclusion in the, in the technology ecosystem. So I think one thing that is positive is in the past few years, it feels like these topics have been on the agenda and we kind of finally agree on a, on, on a few simple truths. I think one that we agree on is not only is diversity the right thing to do, a wealth 
wealth of data shows that diverse teams perform better. Number two, we agree on the fact that the homogeneity of VCs reinforces the status quo on the founder side. And, and three, we agree that the technology ecosystem is sort of endemically uninclusive and at worst, as we've seen very publicly, outright discriminatory. But even with all of that dialogue and all of that awareness, like there is no movement on any meaningful metric around this problem. Like in Europe specifically, you know, year after year, all male founding teams raise 90% of all VC funding, comparable rounds raised by all female teams continue to be 30% smaller. And, you know, as many people when polled report facing discrimination. So what do we need to do to finally even start to solve this problem? Yes. Well, first of all, I would contend the notion that we all agree on those three points. You and I may agree. And a lot of people that, you know, I talk to may agree. And some people may even intellectually agree. But in practice, is that still played out? And that's why, you know, one, one thing that I really emphasize is that data piece of it. I really get frustrated when DEI gets bucketed and all the other alphabet soup of charitable social impact, right? ESG, CSR, that's not what this is about. Yes, it's good, but it's good for my LPs. It's good for my partners. It's good for those founders. We know that women founded companies and women led companies perform better across a number of different metrics that they literally have faster time to exit. Uh, that diverse boards perform better on the S&P index, that they're more capital efficient, they have higher revenues, better profitability. I can point you a dozen or, or more different studies pointing to that. But are those the studies that are driving the unconscious biases that happen? These self-perceptions, not just bias to someone, but our self-biases, we know that those can start as early as 18 months of age. That's something I think about all the time as a parent. Uh, it's the reason I decided to write a children's book, actually, about a young girl who, who starts a company. And it's, it's why there's not going to be one single solution and it's not going to be a solution that comes at the very tail end. This is something we realized at Google when I was there back in the day. It was the year that Google announced their diversity numbers, in particular for computer scientists. And it was dismal. And they were the first big tech company to do that. And to their credit, you know, lots of others followed suit and that became the norm. But once that data was out there, the company, and I was a part of this, uh, underwent this massive effort to try to understand where are the different points of attrition? Where can we move the needle? And we realized it was everywhere. We needed to work on early childhood education. We needed to work with Hollywood to write characters into TV shows that were not just the token women engineers, but where it was completely normalized. And so when I think about the context of venture and founding companies, we need more of that across the board from early childhood education all the way through mentorship and peer support for founders who are taking their companies public. It's not going to be one single solution there, but I have been very heartened by the efforts I have seen, many of which did not exist just five, six years ago, uh, you know, when I was first thinking about getting into venture. Organizations like All Raise and Him For Her and Women in VC, informal groups like the WhatsApp and iMessage groups that I'm on. Uh, these are critical to moving the needle. And it's why I told Emily Chang at Bloomberg that I'm optimistic AF. That is, that's an inspiring note to end on. And I did want to continue by asking about the, the sort of the early side of that timeline you mentioned about like early childhood, about people in their teenage years. And I, I think it's important to say upfront that the startup ecosystem is more homogenous than the talent pool it draws from. So it's not a pipeline problem uh, exclusively, yes. but at the same time, it is true. Like there is data on the fact that some of the problem quantifiably originates in childhood and education, where depending on your gender, depending on your socioeconomic status, you end up uh, making different choices. So, so what are the structural changes we need? 
Yeah. I mean, we, we see that across the board. It's omnipresent. So I don't have one single solution, but I know that representation really matters. And for me, like my daughter, you know, who's six and a half, a few months ago, she saw me doing some interview on TV and she knows I'm very close to a number of friends who happen to be investors who also happen to be women. And she said, mom, can boys also one day grow up to be VCs? I'll never forget when she asked me that. So it really does matter at every step uh, of the way. It's why I wrote this children's book. Uh, you know, I was presenting at my daughter's preschool class just a few years ago. Uh, they had this career week and I volunteered to come in and, and try to explain what I do for a living to a group of three-year-olds, which was no easy feat because I have a hard enough time explaining to my parents or friends my age who are outside <laughs> of the industry. What? So whenever I have a complicated topic uh, with, with children, I turn to books. And for the life of me, I couldn't find anything. There was very, very little, not only about obviously venture capital, which is a complex topic for children, but even about starting a business. And I decided from then, like this book needs to be in the world. I want it for my kids. I'm going to write it. And so I did. And, you know, hopefully it'll be out there in the world. These things take a long time. It's not the pace of venture, but I'm excited about it. And that's just one small step, I hope, in, in representation at the earliest days. Such a, such an inspirational project. And anecdotally, I know that in 2000, Finland elected its uh, its first female uh, president in Tarihalona. I know several of my friends' uh, sisters asking that same question of like, can boys be president when they grow up? So, oh, that's so amazing. Clearly representation matters. Yes. And by the way, that is actually documented in data as well. Like there was a Fortune article a couple of weeks back about when women lead companies, the the language that is used to describe women at other levels within the company is markedly different. So you're you're right. It's anecdotal, but it's also documented by data. And that's why all of these things matter across the board. Mm-hmm. And then let's talk about the the other side of the, the coin, which is inclusion. Like if we don't manage to make technology companies sort of welcoming to all kinds of people, like not only will it be wrong, but it'll be a huge impediment to, to solving diversity as well. And one thing that I did want to ask you, which is, and, and, and this is going to be a contentious claim that I'm trying to make here, you know, sometimes the same cultural tenets that have made a given company successful ultimately is the exact same thing that has ultimately made it discriminatory as well. Like I would even claim at Uber, where clearly the culture ended up going horribly wrong and much of the problem was sort of despicable human beings. I would say part of its culture of sort of harassment and, and a lack of inclusion was also encoded in kind of well intention cultural tenets such as two-stepping, which ended up going wrong. So how can founders ensure that a culture of high performance never crosses the line into a culture that is non-inclusive? Yeah, you know, I think that's an interesting one, especially in the context of, you know, the recent uh, Hollywood hits that are out oh, there yes. now on a number of these shows. I, I'm a TV junkie, so I'm watching all of them. Uh, you know, I I wasn't at Uber when, uh, when all that went down. I was at GV for a period of time where they had invested. So I, I won't speak to that particular company, but I will say that they're not mutually exclusive. They are not. I mean, I literally just talked about how being a mom drives this ruthless prioritization and tenacity. Those things are not separate and they are not on opposite ends of the spectrum. I've seen that in the companies that we've seeded as they've grown, how they build culture and inclusivity. Again, with inclusivity not being this like nice to have word that's tacked on with some PowerPoint training, but actually that's really built in to the ethos of the company. And I'm honestly, I say I'm optimistic. I am because that's what I'm seeing in terms of how these these founders across the board are thinking about everything from performance reviews to company events to the, the language that they use around parental leave. It is very different than it was a few years ago. And I think although mm-hmm. there's still a lot of bad behavior that happens, there's a hell of a lot of good behavior that happens too. And I will, I'm long on the, on the good behavior companies because that's frankly where the 
talent wants to go now. And what that means is that those companies will hire the best and they will be the best. Mm -hmm. I'm going to try and squeeze in two more questions. The sure. first one of which is if this reaches, say, someone in their early 20s and breaking into venture capital feels completely impenetrable, what would you what would you say to them? What advice would you would you give to a person like that? Yeah, for a young person who wants to get into venture, my first question is why? Why is this what you want to do? Because yes, it can look glamorous and sexy on the outside, but you know, it's not sitting back in a chair with your feet up and writing a check. It's a lot more than that. Uh, the second question is like, what's your superpower? What do you bring to the table? Obviously, I, I think I represent and a number of my partners at Lux represent that there is no obvious path to becoming a VC, but everybody brings that particular edge to the table. What is the edge? Is it that you are an incredible super connector who is able to help with hiring executives and bring amazing board members and make connections for introductions to portfolio companies? Is it that you are an incredibly empathetic coach and almost therapist to be there for your founders? Is it that you, you're able to recognize challenges and, and, and preempt those before? Everybody has something. It's kind of hard to know really early what those are. I didn't know. It took me a while. Some people can, some people do. I've met some incredible young investors who are wise beyond their years and can, can see all of that early on. But that's really the question I ask at any age for somebody who wants to do this. What is it that you bring to the table? Because this is a competitive industry. It's not easy. It's also not rational in a lot of ways. So you have to bring something and you have to love it and want it enough to keep going because otherwise you're not going to be very good at it. And there's a lot of other things you could be doing. And to finish off very quickly, what is an important truth about building companies that very few people would agree with you on? I would say that it really is all about the people. And I don't just mean that in terms of investing, but in terms of hiring as well. The early stage entrepreneurs that we fund, the, the thoughtfulness that they put into who they bring around the table early and the mistakes that they sometimes go through and that they learn from, uh, I think are probably one of the cr most critical decision points in, in company creating. Life is too short to work with people you don't have chemistry with, you don't like, you don't share values with. And I think if you see that early on, you save yourself a lot of heartache. That is a fantastic note to end on. Thank you, Dina. This has been one of the most multifaceted, joyful conversations conversations I've had, not only while doing this podcast, but generally in life. So thank you so oh, much for joining Oh, that's so us. kind of you. It was really fun. Thank you so much. Uh, it was a great conversation. I look forward to hopefully more conversations to come. <laughs>